Welcome to the Nutrition Awareness Podcast. I'm Megan, a registered dietitian and owner of the Nutrition Awareness Private Practice, where we help our clients to optimize their lives using nutrition. For some, that means weight loss. Others, that means increasing energy or improving performance. You may have heard my voice a few times on previous podcasts, but today I'm hosting a conversation with Tyler Lott. He has a background in both behavioral therapy and as a CrossFit coach. I wanted to have Tyler on the podcast because I am fascinated by human behavior and what influences our decisions, why we tend to sabotage ourselves, what motivates us, and really it's my job to help facilitate behavior change, and that's a lot of what we talked about in this conversation, was how to help people change habits, what makes us want to change those habits in the first place, how to self-analyze, and how to motivate ourselves when we're failing. We get into everything to why fat-free peanut butter is the worst, some common things that his athletes struggle with when it comes to nutrition, how to overcome those struggles, as well as strategies that you can incorporate if you feel like you're struggling to make a positive change. So please, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did with Tyler Law. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello friends, we are here on the Nutrition Awareness Podcast. This is Megan Ware, your host for the day, and I am here with Tyler Lott. Tyler, can you tell us about yourself? Hi, yeah. Hi, Megan. So happy to be here. Um, Yeah, sure. I am a fitness instructor, a CrossFit coach, to put it plainly. My CrossFit coach. I am your CrossFit (laughs) coach, proudly. Um, But in addition to that, my background is in behavioral science, more specifically what's called applied behavior analysis. And though I haven't practiced that professionally for a couple of years now, uh, it's still very fresh in my mind and something that I'm very passionate about and and try to keep up with as much as I can. Can you tell me what behavioral science is? Because I don't know that it was something that I'd ever really heard of until I started talking with you. What is behavioral science and how did you get interested in that? Sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to. It's one of my favorite things to do, actually, in conversations like these is to explain what behavioral science is and also respond to what you said about not being very familiar with it, which is uh, entirely common. Behavioral science is quite plainly just the study and seeking of understanding of how and why behavior works, why people do what they do. as complex and nuanced as that can be, as complex as your imagination says that it is, it is that complicated. Um, And I discovered behavior analysis in my last year at FSU, my last year at college, when I wasn't super sure what I wanted to do for the last couple of semesters of my college career or what to do after that. And I stumbled onto a lecture from the then president of the ABA department at FSU, his name's John Bailey, and he gave a really inspiring mini symposium on, on what behavior analysis is and what you can do with it. And I immediately fell in love with it. I fell in love with it right then and there and knew deep down that that's what I wanted to do for sure. 
And that night I went home and, and did everything I could to prepare myself for applying to grad schools and what looks good and what I should be interested in and what I should be directing my attention toward. And applied to a few different schools, got in, chose one, and here we are now today. What does that look like in practice? What are people who go into that field, what do they do? So I think the best way to answer that question is to revisit the topic of what is behavioral science. So behavioral science is the understanding of how and why behavior looks and feels the way it does, why people do what they do. So applied behavioral science or applied behavior analysis is taking that one step further and applying what you know about behavior to make meaningful changes in people's lives. Generally speaking, you do one of two things, or you can only do two things, increase some aspects of behavior or decrease them. And that's kind of a fork in the road with most of ABA. You either pursue a path or a career whereby you are improving performance um, or you are reducing the likelihood that someone or a group of people will do things that aren't good for them, like self-injury or violence or any number of things like that. So you're either seeking, you're always seeking to change behavior, some aspect of it. And sometimes we're looking for big, robust changes, and sometimes we're looking for just very small, minor changes that have a big impact. Um, What's the difference between that and, say, a mental health therapist? That's a, another great question. The differences are, are very fundamental. A mental health therapist, well, let me back up. That question was a lot easier to answer maybe 20 years ago. Okay. Today it's a little different because those different disciplines, those different ideologies are kind of blending and working with each other a little bit more, which is such a great thing, by the way. But traditionally speaking, mental health and counseling and traditional psychology are concerned with the mind, which doesn't really exist. We, you can't point to a mind. You can't hold a mind or feel it. It's not quantitative. So we create things, labels, and, and ways of speaking about the mind um, so that we can talk about them, so that we can measure those things. Psychology is very much concerned with what goes on in someone's mind. Behavioral science is concerned with and only concerned with things that are concrete and measurable. So behavioral science was never really interested in what's going on inside your skull, but what's going on outside of you. So any and all motor behavior from any and all living creatures, minus plants, any willful behavior is what behavioral science is concerned with. And so as an extension of that, to change behavior, you make modifications to the environment. Mm -hmm. That's behavior analysis in a nutshell, making environmental modifications to create behavioral change mental health therapy and psychology and things that I'm not you know, qualified to really speak about aren't so much concerned with making environmental changes. Now, like I say, they do now. The sciences are, are kind of starting to collaborate and blend a little bit more than they used to. Um, but again, traditionally speaking, that wasn't their MO. It was mm -hmm. what goes on inside the head and how can we change that. Right. And the blending of that was something like with what I do. It's interesting to me that this wasn't really ever part of the curriculum, whereas like we learn a lot of the science behind the nutrition aspect. Like I understand everything that's going on in the body, but behavior analysis, that wasn't a course that we were taught. It's so fascinating. <laughs> that to me is so fascinating because I've heard that from a few different uh, colleagues, friends, etc., who practice in fields where behavior is a huge part of it. Nutrition, of course, and education is another one that jumps to mind. And I thumbed through a teacher's uh, textbook one time 
and there was, you know, I looked through the glossary to see if they included behavior analysis, and they did, cool. And it was pages 19 and 20, and it was two paragraphs. Mm -hmm. That was it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it's just wild to me. I almost, you know, I'm passionate about it, and I love it. I feel like it's my science, so this may come as no surprise. But I think understanding your behavior, understanding how behavior works, is so important to everyone's life. I feel like it should be a, it's a right for human beings to understand how their behavior works because the principles of behavior are very simple and they're easy to understand. The application of those principles gets complicated. But the principles themselves are relatively simple and I think everyone should be entitled to that information. Right. How did you blend that with what you're currently doing now as a CrossFit coach? Entirely. So almost everything that I do inside uh, our gym, I draw on my behavior analytic experience for sure. And if it's not, if I'm not diving too deep into real ABA techniques, I'm at least very superficially aware of just how behavior works. I can give you, you know, a few examples. Yeah, give us some specifics. Some that really come to mind. The best examples I think to use are to do with. Um, so high skill things in the in the gym. So for those that don't know, CrossFit is a, a blend of Olympic weightlifting, gymnastics, and then good old fashioned monostructural activities. What we call monostructural activities, things like running, swimming, jumping, um, and that stuff is pretty simple. But the Olympic weightlifting and the gymnastics can get fairly complicated. And so, how do you teach someone this very complicated set of movements that become one? seamless thing how do you teach someone that when they've never done it before and so you break it down into its component elements and teach them in a sequence that is taken directly from behavioral science Mm -hmm. in that world we might call it a task analysis and we might call it chaining whereby you teach a sequence of behaviors in 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 order uh, until they've until the learner has exhibited proficiency in all of those component steps and then you start to marry them together blend them together until it becomes one thing that comes through my brain every single time a new person comes in and they've never touched a barbell before have you ever touched a barbell before yes okay cool have you ever olympic lifted before no what is that and so now you know you have this relationship with an athlete and we're doing squat snatches that day and they've never done that before, never even heard it before. Very intimidating, very complicated. So you break it down into its most core basic elements and teach them that way so that it doesn't feel so intimidating. You know, you don't go from the bottom of the mountain to the very top in one fell swoop. Um, So that's maybe the biggest way, the most obvious way. But in other ways, you know, I borrow a lot from my behavior analytic background when speaking to athletes and, you know, reinforcement is a concept that is largely misunderstood although most people are familiar with that term reinforcement reinforcement is just you know arranging variables to create an increase in behavior and when you're reinforcing behavior inside of a a gym or a crossfit gym it's really just like reinforcing behavior inside of a, a classroom or a restaurant or anything else like that and so i borrow a lot from from my behavior world in doing that for example you always want to provide some amount of verbal praise to athletes when they engage in appropriate behaviors, when they engage in target behaviors well. Even if they don't do them super well, sometimes you want to recognize just their effort or their attempts at doing something correctly. So it's just, you know, and that you could argue is managing just their emotional experience with the gym, but I would argue that that's very important. 
and I try to maintain a certain ratio of positive praise or explicitly calling out what they're doing well versus what you're correcting. Because correction, for some whatever reason, somewhat of a phenomenon, I guess, but correction always kind of feels heavy and yeah. praise feels kind of light. Right. I find that with my clients coming in, there has to be a really good balance of I don't want you to come in here and feel like every single thing you just did was wrong, even if you didn't change anything from the last time that I saw you. I sure. need to come in and find the shining light, or you're not going to want to walk back in that door. Exactly. If you feel like you just got even more beat up than you have been over the past two weeks. Right. When learning something is going to take a while, you don't want the process of learning to be aversive. You want right. it to be enjoyable to some degree. There's going to be, there's plenty of things that are hard about learning Olympic weightlifting or gymnastics. The process itself shouldn't be aversive. It should be something that you look forward to, even though it is difficult. Mm -hmm. And a big part of ensuring that that process is enjoyable comes from from you as the instructor. And uh, and like I said, maintaining a certain ratio of, hey, you're doing this very well. I see you moved your feet really quickly on that last one. Great job. Next time, let's try to pull the bar a little higher. Yeah. Which is, has a way different effect from, why was your pull so short? or right. <laughs> finish your pull and right. then walking away. Right. That's the exact same information. Yep. It feels entirely different yep, exactly. and has a different effect. Do you, do you feel like CrossFit is right for everyone or is there a specific type of person that does really well? Because I see clients that are struggling with coming up with a physical activity routine that they really enjoy. And so I see CrossFit as a way of not only like making friends and being in an environment that's fun. It's not just going to the gym, putting your headphones on, putting your head down and trying to grind out a workout. And so I, a lot of times I'm met with some resistance because you see these athletes on TV doing CrossFit and they're like, hell no, I'm never walking into a gym like that and doing that. Do you think there is a place in everyone's life for CrossFit or do you think it's good for a certain type of population? Yes and yes. And I, I almost see them as different questions and it just kind of comes down to how you define CrossFit in its purest form. In a vacuum of purity, my answer to that question is yes, definitely. Because CrossFit is a methodology. It's an ideology, really. It's a lifestyle. It's not just the 45 minutes or an hour you spend in a gym. So with that perspective, yes, I, I, I do believe it, it, it is potentially for everyone. I can't imagine a person who it wouldn't be good for because we're talking about things like using your body, understanding your anatomy, having a good relationship with food and nutrition and enjoying your life. That is, to me, what CrossFit is, not what I just said a minute ago, which is a bunch of Olympic lifting and running and swimming and gymnastics. To me, that's those are the ingredients of CrossFit. Those are the things that make up CrossFit. CrossFit, in general, I think, does have a lot of value for anyone and everyone. You know, they say when you're beginning CrossFit, I forget where this is, but it's for everyone from, you know, your grandma to your seven-year-old niece, you know, like the whole spectrum of ages and abilities. And that's something that attracts me very much to CrossFit and did in the beginning was that it was universally applicable. However, with that said, nothing is for everyone. The world is so big. There are so many people. Every time I get a haircut, someone asks, you know, about CrossFit, it comes up. If I decide I want to be honest and talk about it, it comes up and they'll tell me their story and you hear a different story. <laughs> Every time. Yeah. My cousin does it. I tried it once. 
you guys are crazy, this, that, and the other thing. So, you know, there's a lot of misunderstanding. I think CrossFit is for a lot more people than actually do it. But, you know, to be very realistic, I'm sure there are plenty of people out there who would find more value in something else other than CrossFit. But not to sound circular, but to me that's also CrossFit. CrossFit is not limited to just the movements that we do. If you are doing the things I mentioned a minute ago, building a good relationship with food, using your body, staying active, maintaining a balanced regimen of fitness, that's CrossFit. You're doing right. CrossFit even if you don't think you are. Yeah. Do you, do you think there's any truth to those sayings like it takes 21 days to create a new habit? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on that. You know, the, the 10,000 hours thing actually came from Florida State. Eric okay. Erickson, I think, was the lead author on that study back in the day about expertise and okay, how to tell be... tell us about the 10,000 hours. So the, the idea of this, and, and if you have listeners that listen to this that are, uh, you know, very aware of it, they may correct me, but some approximation of this is that his theory or his, uh, his ideas were that it takes 10,000 hours of experience or 10,000 hours of exposure to some discipline or, or some activity to become an expert. Now, you know, it's fun to argue those things. And the caveat, the big caveat is that it's not just 10,000 hours of exposure. You can't just stand in a tee box with a golf club in your hand for 10,000 hours and magically become good at golf. It's 10,000 hours of active participation, of active commitment and effort towards this thing. So, you know, I do kind of believe in that. You know, to take a behavior analytic uh, perspective on it, we're just talking about rehearsal and practice and repeated exposure to behavioral patterns. And what we know about humans is that they are incredible learners. And if you do commit yourself for X amount of time, I don't know what that time is, 10,000 hours, 21 days, you know, there's old shaving advertisements that it takes your face 14 days to get used to an electric razor. That used, <laughs> that used to always puzzle me when I saw it in magazines and things. I was like, is that really true? Maybe. Um, I don't know. I just I do know that it's hard to generalize how long it takes people to get good at something or to form a habit, but it does take repeated exposure for almost all of us. Mm-hmm. Which is a funny thing about learning in a positive way because punishment doesn't work that way. It's a lot more salient. It only takes one touch of a hot stove to realize, "Ooh, mm-hmm. that sucks." Mm-hmm. You know, you get stung by a bee once and you're not slapping a beehive ever again. Right, It's kind of funny. Yeah, yeah. there are, uh, oftentimes I'll ask my clients too, like, are you more motivated by positive reinforcement or negative reinforcement? Meaning if you're making goals and you're like, yeah, if I meet my goal, I'm going to buy myself a new pair of Lululemon pants. Or are you the type of person that I'm going to give $50 to this charity that I absolutely hate if I don't meet my goal? And people are very differently motivated and usually they know right away which one they're going to be more motivated by. That's one of my favorite tactics, by the way, the donation to (laughs) an organization that you (laughs) despise. Yeah. That's a good one. I had a client the other day who had to give to one of the colleges that he hates, like his his rival. That's like your (laughs) go-to. Yeah, you got to write University of Florida check. How's that going to feel? (laughs) Depending on who you are, either good or bad yeah I love I love talking about those two things especially too you know it's I find it inspiring that most people do have a good understanding of what motivates them Mm -hmm. it means they put a lot of thought into it I don't think they're always right or their guesses are always correct Mm -hmm. but I do think it's inspiring that people have a, a pretty firm understanding of what motivates them 
and definitely what wouldn't work on them. Right. But it's and that's such a such an important question to ask before you ever try to make changes to someone's behavior, be it eating or fitness or anything. Before you start to make changes, before you start to intervene on some aspect of their behavior, you have to be sure that the variables that you're going to introduce or take away have some effect. Because if not, you're really just wasting everyone's time. Right, right. And that's that's one of the main things we focus on in that first consultation is what motivates you to be here right now? Why did you walk through that door? One yeah. of the things that are going through your head right before you came in here today that got you in here that's going to make you hand me your credit card. What are you doing here? So I'm sure people usually answer that very honestly. But in your experience, how often, how correct are they about what motivates them? I mean, oftentimes they'll say very generic things like, I want to be healthy. Yeah. And so then I have to break that down. What does healthy mean to you? Because in a year from now, how are we going to measure that you're healthier? I don't think that we can really measure that if you just say the word healthier. So does healthier mean now you can run around with your grandkids and play soccer? Does that mean that your blood sugar levels are normalized? Does that mean you can run a mile without stopping? Does that mean that you're eating two vegetables a day mm -hmm. when you're eating zero vegetables now? So what really defining what healthier means and a lot of times that stops people in their tracks because they've just always heard this term I want to be healthier and it seems like the thing that they should say so let me just say this but then when they think about it does that really motivate me at all does this health aspect motivate me because I don't even really know what that means yeah. but oftentimes we'll get down to the heart of the matter of oh this is what it actually means to you it means I can fit back into my size medium shorts yeah that's what healthier actually means to you and what you're actually motivated by and it's just so important to define those things and it's so important it is the, the it is so critical to your success to create a metric to create something that you can measure so that you can look and see oh look I am getting better or mm -hmm. it is improving mm -hmm. fitness is the exact same way and that's another thing that I love so much about CrossFit is that we measure fitness it is a way of measuring that so that you can create reference points and you can look back and say oh actually I am fitter even if it's lifting five more pounds or shaving two seconds off your 5k time that's still an improvement and you exactly. can still point to it and say oh gosh I did get better I did make an improvement and that feels good and if you don't measure it that way you might not feel it and that's kind of what I meant before about that point. People don't always really know. They have you some forget. idea. You exactly. You where you started from. Oh, yeah. You always forget where you started oh, from. Yeah. But then, for example, in CrossFit, you need to remember the first day you came in here, you were just lifting the bar or you were just lifting the PVC pipe. I think and it is so weights on each side. important to stay connected to your day one self. It's because it's, people forget it. Like you say, they just forget it. And it's, I wish they didn't. But that's how it is. We've been open for seven years now. We've seen hundreds of different faces. It is rare for someone to just naturally stay connected to their day one self and remember what their first day was like. I like to remind newer people, hey, everyone in this gym that you see right now that looks so impressive to you, they all had a first day. Right. And if they don't remember their first day, guess what? I do. Mm -hmm. I remember everybody's first day. And you just have to stay connected to that so that you, you know, can maintain a healthy outlook on what you're doing. Because you'll have bad days and think, oh, gosh, what am I even doing? Yes. Big fat rhino. Yeah. I'm not getting better. <laughs> yes. And that's got to feel the same way with food. You know, the relationship you have with food, if you make, if you have eight good days in a row, but you don't feel better, 
you, it's so easy to think, ah, what's the point? I'll have a milkshake for dinner. I have clients all the time that come in, and oftentimes it'll either it'll be between one and three weeks when I when I see people, and they'll come in and they'll tell me, you know, maybe they'll email me in between time and they'll say, I'm feeling really good, my cravings are down, my energy levels are higher, like this is going amazing. I'm like, all right, great. And then they come in, and they'll have weighed themselves that morning, and they'll come in, and they're like, I gained three pounds. And so everything else goes out the window. Mm-hmm. That's the only thing that matters. They forget that they're sleeping better. They forget that their cravings went down. They forget how good they were feeling. All they see is that one metric of the scale went up three pounds. And their entire outlook on life is completely different. And their motivation level is down here now. I know. Isn't that just it's so it's tragic. If I could press a button and have every scale on planet Earth just <laughs> evaporate, I would press that button. I would Thanos I, I snap. Love that. Every scale away. I really would. It drives me nuts when people talk about their body weight. Body weight doesn't even exist. Nobody knows what it is. It's not a thing. It's It's not a real thing. It's only you see when you go on this... Gravity pulling you down. Exactly. That's all it is. There are far better and so many different ways to measure your health other than that damn number on a scale. And it just... It's maddening sometimes. We have that same thing in CrossFit about... What? How much weight is on the bar? Your deadlift, this, that, and the other thing, and you have to remind people as, as much as you can that that is just one small facet of a very large picture, a large and complicated, colorful picture. Look at the rest of it. You know, measure your body weight, of course, sure, whatever, but don't get so hung up on it. Right. And it speaks again don't to let that. Don't that be the thing that's affecting your entire day and coloring each decision that you're making along the way. Yeah. What's been one of your personal struggles when it comes to fitness or nutrition or anything related? Have you had any personal struggles? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. With fitness and nutrition, I kind of see them, you know, for me at least in terms of my struggles as being uh, very much related to each other. When I feel like I'm out of shape, it's really hard for me to find that feeling of wanting to get back in the gym and get back to where I was. I don't think this is unique to me at all either, by the way. You know, I've played sports my entire life, and I've definitely been through chapters in my life where I've been overweight or I've maybe felt more overweight than I really was, but either way, it was all the same. I have asthma. I've been asthmatic my entire life. I lived in a small town in Georgia in the 90s as a kid, which you can imagine just how backwards everything was there with respect to health and fitness in general and you know I was put on uh, drugs meds for my asthma at a young age that weren't so good for me and made me gain weight or led to an increase in body weight so there have been times and I always feel like I feel connected to how I felt back then and there have been other times as an adult of course where I feel like I'm not fit and it's just so hard to begin the journey back to that place of feeling fit. Yeah. How do you, how do you pull yourself out of that? How do you begin that journey? I lean very heavily on the one day at a time approach, the small Mm -hmm. steps. I, you know, it's funny. There are so many behavior analysts that are brilliantly, that are just so brilliant and so such experts on how to manage and shape behavior. Yet some aspects of their life are out of control. I've met many behavior analysts, great ones that have, poorly trained pets and I would never (laughs) name names because that's like the ultimate sin of a behavioral expert to have a dog that doesn't listen to you but I think that speaks to the reality of the world we live in 
And yeah, I still feel that same way, but I try to lean very heavily on what I know about behavior and what I know about behavioral momentum and how you build momentum. And I just try to narrow my focus to having a one good day and then two good days and then three good days. And if that's not working, I dial it all the way back to hours. I just want to have set a goal. I want to have four good hours where I make nothing but healthy decisions. If I make it there, we'll extend it beyond that. And that's what I've done for maybe the past 10 years is it starts with one good day. And if you have one good day, great. Celebrate it, feel good about yourself, uh, and set that same goal for the next day. I want to have another good day where I make zero poor decisions, zero unhealthy decisions. That's the way I frame it for myself. It's not about what I eat or what I don't eat, but it's about making decisions. Mm -hmm. And if I have to stack the deck in my favor and only fill the house with healthy things and remove all temptations, then that's what I do. I don't always have to do that. It's not always so drastic. But that's the goal, is to make healthy decisions and avoid unhealthy decisions. It's all about decision making. And I just set small goals and increase them as we go by. And if I have a bad day, I just start over one day. Do you think it's harder or easier that you're surrounded by fitness fanatics all day, every day? So much easier (laughs) for me personally. It is so much easier because And maybe this is something I've had to become good at, but I try really hard not to upward compare. Upward comparison is where, you know, you only look at people that are better than you at something Mm -hmm. or at least people that you perceive are better than you, and then you think, oh, I suck compared to them. Downward comparison, of course, is equally frustrating because you look at people that you're better than and you think, oh, I don't need to improve. I'm better than them. I try to avoid all that stuff and just find inspiration in the people that are around me because we are surrounded by phenomenal athletes and people that are in fantastic shape. We're also surrounded by people that are beginning their fitness journey or reshaping their relationship with food and they're at the beginning of that whole process. So the full spectrum is there if you just open your eyes to see it. Most people in a CrossFit gym or at least in our CrossFit gym, they either see one or the other and you know you try to encourage them right. to see the whole picture. Right. And so I just, you know, I do my very best to stay in the habit of seeing that full picture and drawing inspiration from all of them and incorporating that into my life and my decision making. There are times when, yeah, I'll look at some guys and think, you know, damn it, I wish, you know, I was faster than him or whatever like that. But, and I, you know, I let myself feel those feelings and just kind of let them pass. But ultimately, I try to reorient myself to just finding inspiration in those people. And that really does work because we are surrounded by people who, like you say, are fantastically healthy and such great athletes. And I want to be there. And even if I am there, I still want to be there more. So, I, you know, it, it helps me. I just I think if I lived in the middle of nowhere, South Dakota, and there was no one around me but maybe like a couple of couch potatoes and we just watched Rick and Morty all day, that I probably wouldn't be so healthy. And I think that's true. <laughs> I'd like to believe I'd be out there pushing boulders around and dragging plows, but I don't know. Yeah. Can you tell us some of your favorite coaching moments that you've had? I can and tell this you. Could be, this could be in CrossFit or this could be in your previous positions. Like, What are some of your, your favorite success stories? There are so many that come to mind, but one I do, the first that comes to mind, the one that comes to mind the most vividly and always first is anyone's first pull-up 
to me that is it's so symbolic it's so literal it's just everything it is so challenging for most people to just pull themselves up over a bar Absolutely. and to me the symbolism is there it's it's you it's your own body the only thing that you're moving is you everything that makes you up every molecule that is your whole being is what you're moving you're not moving a bar you're not doing anything fancy or complicated you're just pulling yourself up there's so much survival value attached to that if you're on the side of a boat and you're surrounded by sharks you have to pull yourself into that boat you have to pull yourself up back into a, a building that you almost fell over there's just to me the pull-up is representative of everything that is so great about what a human body can achieve and most people can't do one so your first pull-up even though it's basic and seems so fundamental always sets my heart on fire no matter who it is and a lot of people walk into a CrossFit gym and they can do them right away and it's no big deal great awesome that is cool too but a first pull-up is always something that I find especially inspiring and uh, and I look forward to those moments for sure other than that, breakthrough moments always inspire me. So, you know, not to get super deep, but a big oh, we can get deep. a big part of my <laughs> career was spent doing one-on-one instruction with three, four, and five-year-olds on the autism spectrum. Okay. Now, when you talk about autism and autism spectrum disorders or autism spectrum diagnoses, it's difficult to generalize. But what I can say about every little youngster that I worked with was that you really, you're working towards this breakthrough moment where they feel like they can communicate with the world around them, where they feel like, and I, you know, I hate to speak about how they feel because you don't know, but when you sit at a table with a four-year-old for months and months and months and work on rote behavioral learning and one day it does seem like you can just see it in their face. One day they, they interact with an object or they make a, a request for something and it works. It's just, I mean, it couldn't be more inspiring. It makes your heart explode. Mm-hmm. Even if it's something stupid like asking for a cracker. Mm-hmm. You have to appreciate how just incredible it is to interact with your environment to produce a result that you want and how much we take that for granted. And when you work with with anyone on the autism spectrum, but especially little ones because they're new to the world, you know, they're new to their diagnosis, they have no idea they've been diagnosed or any of that kind of stuff, they're new to the world entirely. And when they engage in behavior that produces a positive result and you see the feeling hit them of, wow, I do have control over my environment, at least a little bit. I mean, how could it not? I mean, it just makes you feel so good. Not even that you're the one that brought that to them, just that they're experiencing it. It doesn't matter who taught them. You know, those moments are always my favorite, always, always my favorite. But with that stuff aside, you know, I I enjoy coaching so much. Every single day is a new adventure. Even the things that you've done a million times still feel fresh and fun and exciting because it's a different person. It's a different day. It's, you know, it just, um, it never gets old for me, really. Does nutrition come up a lot when you're coaching? A lot, so much, yeah. What are some of the questions that you get? What are some of the common things that people are struggling with in the gym? The most common question is, what should I be eating? Very simply. And my response to this question is always roughly the same. It's in in this general order. One, great question. So back to that reinforcing momentum. Mm -hmm. Hey, just the fact that you're asking that question is great. Great question. I'm glad you asked. Never be afraid to ask those questions in our gym. If you're in a CrossFit gym and you ask someone about nutrition and they roll their eyes at you or they don't want to answer your question, that's probably not a good gym for you to be in. So right off the bat, just I'm glad you asked. 
Two, I am not professionally qualified to really speak to you about your individual nutrition. I'm happy to answer this. I've learned a lot through practice. I know a lot through education. But I'm not a nutritionist. I'm not a dietitian. So take whatever I say to you with, you know, a small grain of salt. You know, cross-reference anything you hear from me. Ask, you know, seek professional help if you want more of it. But three, I'm very happy to answer this question for you. And it goes like this. A, a balanced and healthy diet that consists mostly of protein. Don't skip your fats. Make sure you're eating carbs. You don't have to go carb-free or fat-free. No one ever wants to go protein-free, so that never really, so that really comes up. Limit your sugar intake as best you can and set yourself up for success. Don't beat yourself up over any little transgression you have. And most people respond positive, positively to that, and they generally walk away thinking, okay, yeah, cool. That's cool. Not, yeah, you make it sound awesome. I feel so often like we're trying to reshape people's relationship with food and make it a positive one, not a punishing one. Right. And, you know, I get asked all kinds of questions. I've, recently I was asked about, well, do you have cheat days? And I looked at the person who asked me, and I just, you know, I said, no, I really don't. They said, really? And I said, yeah. I mean, what is a cheat day? A day when you just throw everything out the window and eat burrito bowls and ice cream until the cows come home? I mean, okay, if you want to do that, do that. But I wouldn't, I would switch your mental state of being. I would switch your mindset from thinking about it as cheating. Cheating is such a negative thing to, to say. There's so many negative implications with just the word cheat. I wouldn't think of it that way. I don't have any cheat days. If I'm committed to a healthy balanced diet then I'm committed to a healthy balanced diet and if I'm not following a healthy balanced diet then I'm not following a healthy balanced diet I don't consider it a cheat day or anything like that so we talk you know those kind of conversations come up a lot and then the maybe the the second or third most common thing that happens in the gym is telling someone that they need to eat just period mm. are you eating are you giving your body fuel what we find so often is that people want to do it all at once. They want to build Rome in a day. It's Monday. I'm starting CrossFit. I'm throwing all the way, throwing away all my cereal. I'm eating a thousand calories. I'm eating a thousand calories, mostly from romaine lettuce. <laughs> I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to kill it in there, you know. And it's just again, when we talk about setting up for success, that is not setting yourself up for success, and that happens a lot. I think most of our members would be surprised to learn how much that happens, especially in the summertime. It is not uncommon for someone to come in there on their first day, and I'll ask them, did you eat today? And they'll say, no, not really. And I just want to say, go home. Get out of here. Go home. Or, did you eat today? Yes. Great. What did you have? I had a salad. What else did you have? That's it okay, go home. Like, you can't be here. You wouldn't, I I, I tell them, you're not going to drive to Wyoming in a car with no gas. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't come in here and do all this with no fuel in your body. And that, it's not to beat them up or make anybody feel bad. I think it's indicative or revealing of a, a awkward, bad relationship that our culture has with food and their own health and fitness. I shouldn't, I can't eat this, I'll be fat. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know. Or just the feeling good about yourself because you skipped eating or you skipped a meal or I'm going to get skinnier or lose more weight as if I don't eat. Exactly. It's like, look, I'm disciplined. I can do this. Mm-hmm. I can skip a meal. And, you know, I don't necessarily enjoy it, but I am happy to be the person to stand in a gym 
and look at someone and say, no, you need to eat food. As obvious and silly as that sounds, and I don't mean to condescend anyone, but you have to tell them sometimes. I and mean, we've had people that come, we've never had anyone pass out. It's just never happened. But we've had a few scary moments where people, you know, kind of wobble and have to sit down. And then that creates that conversation. That used to happen more because, you know, now we're keen to it, we're aware of it, and you ask, you're a little bit more proactive about it. Yeah. Tell me about what you had to eat today. Um, but it happens where they come and it's they don't do it. It's probably pretty common in before starting CrossFit, you're like, I want to lose weight, I'm just going to eat less. And so you're already doing that and you're starting this new regimen and then you're like, also I'm going to do CrossFit. Mm-hmm. But then it takes you a while to realize, oh, I'm actually doing some really hard stuff and in order for me to do that really hard stuff, I have to be giving my body the right stuff yeah. to be able to do it in yeah. the first place. Oh yeah. And you have to practice what you preach. You have to be your own model for that. And when I'm, I love when people ask me how much of X, Y, or Z I eat. How much fat do you eat in a day? How much whatever do you eat in a day? And I'll tell them some big number, and they'll say, really? And it's like, yeah, really. That's mm-hmm. just how it works. You can't starve yourself and, and hope to make any meaningful gains in your in your fitness life. It just won't happen. It's insane how much more I eat on Isn't the days it? that I, I work know. out and how hungry I am. It's, it's just nuts. it's constant. My body's like, give me more food, give me more food. When I do workouts in the morning, it's like all day long. Give me food, give me food, give me food. I know. It's another thing. That's back to your question earlier about what's hard for me when I when I do struggle with fitness related things. If I'm injured or not working out really for an extended period of time, it takes about two weeks for me to really feel a change in my metabolism, but I feel it. I feel way slower. Food, I feel like food stays in me way longer, mm-hmm. and it's, you know, I have to undo my behavioral patterns because I'm used to eating a lot, like you say, being mm-hmm. hungry all the time and just constantly consuming, and I can't be that way if I'm hurt or not really working out. Conversely, when I am healthy and fit and working out a lot, I really can feel it. It's like a hot furnace that's just constantly burning. And you throw a log on there, it burns up. You got to throw another one on to keep the fire burning. And um, I take that as a sign that I'm in a good position fitness-wise. And I kind of enjoy it, you know, because food's fun to eat. You know, it's yeah. fun to, yeah. to eat your healthy foods. And yeah. A lot of people think that if you enjoy food, you can't eat healthfully or you can't maintain a certain level of fitness I have clients that say I just enjoy food too much like because I enjoy food I can't be fit or I can't be healthy and I tell them like I want you to enjoy your food forever and always a diet is not like if, if you don't enjoy the food that you're eating, it's not going to last at all. So we have to find a happy medium where it's things that you actually enjoy eating, that you look forward to. This shouldn't be torture. So a lot of people are used to exactly. diets being torture. They come in, we start working together, and they're like, this isn't torture, something's wrong. No, this, this it will is never last. to be for you yeah. to maintain it for the long haul. Is you need to get enjoyment from your food. That's not a bad thing. I think there are some people that are more food motivated than others, just like dogs. Yeah, sure. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. Puppies. Like, there are, yeah, more yeah. Do- there are some dogs that are food motivated, some dogs that are ball motivated, like, just, like, there are people. I have clients that don't care. They're just like, tell me what to eat for lunch and I'll eat it. Whatever you say, yeah. I'm going to do it. But when you are a food motivated person, that doesn't mean that you can't see results. You can still enjoy your food because I want you to enjoy your food, and that's the only way that it's going to last. Yeah, and it's it. Don't you find it challenging to get people to understand that? 
absolutely because it's it's been ingrained in their brain especially females that have started diets since they were 10 years old you know 10 years old her and mom went on Weight Watchers together mm -hmm. and she lost her first 30 pounds and it felt good and it was deprivation and that deprivation equaled success and so they put those two things together in their head and they say if I'm not depriving myself I'm not being successful so if I'm giving in and I feel good about what I'm eating there's no way that I'm getting any closer to my goals if I just enjoyed this oatmeal with blueberries and walnuts and peanut butter in it like I enjoy that, so I must not be doing the right thing. And that is such a toxic mindset. And I don't know where that comes from, but that toxic relationship with food is so inhibiting. When you feel like you can't be happy and feel good while also making progress, where does that come from? I don't know. But it is so culture. frustrating. I always point to the 90s because it's, you know, it's where we're from. And I just think about our awkward relationship with food in the 90s. And I feel like these that mindset is a remnant of that. We took the fat out of everything and made everything taste like cardboard. And then it was supposedly good for you. Yeah, so it's we just wild. Fat-free cookies that tasted like nothing or the rice cakes and we were being good quote good because of it I had this moment of clarity one time where I felt guilty about a banana that I ate one time <laughs> because it had sugar in it Yeah, and then fortunately, you know, it clicked in my head another voice in my head said Think about what you're doing right now You're beating yourself up over eating a piece of fruit that has exactly. existed on planet earth since long before you were even born It's fine you know yeah and we have all these messages coming at us constantly that sugar is bad for you eating a certain amount of calories is bad for you you need to be paleo so you can't have nuts or you can't have legumes or you need to be vegan because we can't have animal products because it's bad for the environment or you need to only get your lettuce from farmer joe down the street who only lives five miles away and we can't do gmo it's like all of these things that are coming at you all the time so people feel paralyzed to make any change because it's not going to be that perfect change. Like maybe it's not the lettuce from Farmer Joe down the street, but maybe you chose chicken instead of a che triple cheeseburger. Like that's better, you're, mm -hmm. you're, get, you're getting yeah. there. So it's really taking people, trying to get them to take a step back to say that you are never ever gonna be perfect when it comes to nutrition. Right. And that is 100% okay. You don't need to ever be there. We need to take a step back and think, where are you now and where do you wanna be? Are you getting any closer to that? And I think that what you just said, that last sentence, falls firmly under the umbrella of bringing honesty to the conversation about food, which I think is lacking significantly now. Being honest about food and the relationship you have with it. Food tastes good. You just have to admit it. That's a hard thing for a lot of people. Bad foods that taste good. Why do you eat? Why are you overconsuming? Or why are you eating these things? People will rarely say because it tastes good. And I wish that we would be a little bit more comfortable admitting that. And then we can start to work on changing our relationship a little bit. But we make excuses so often for ourselves. And we look for other reasons why we do this or that. And just be honest. You know, How was your diet today? Well, it wasn't that bad. It, no one's going to yell at you or make well, fun of you. I think the big thing is no one's asking those questions. Yeah, that's probably true too. And so, you know, obviously, like, I'm team go see dietitian, but you don't need to know about food to have a conversation with someone about it. But if you have someone who every week or every two weeks is asking you, like, hey, like, how's your nutrition going? Like, how are you feeling? How are your energy levels? And you actually have to think about that, that's going to cause you to evaluate 
but a lot of times we're just not doing any kind of self-evaluation from the day to day and saying am I making progress or am I being honest with myself about why I ate an entire carton of ice cream I'm just not gonna think I'm gonna throw that away and I'm not gonna think about it yeah so what's Thanksgiving like for you are you just constantly barraged with people asking you about I would say not Thanksgiving because everybody family events any family event really um, any it's usually when I'm meeting new people and it's I'm meeting new people and they say I'm a dietitian especially if we're if there's any food around they say oh don't look at my plate or oh don't look at what I'm drinking do you ever lie (sighs) yeah all the time (laughs) I used to say I was an accountant yeah and people would ask me about behavior are you analyzing me right now insurance agent no insurance agent that's good if the accountant thing didn't really work out for me because people would ask me accounting questions I'd be like oh shit I don't know (laughs) you know so then I just started saying I was a construction and then I, you know, just started being honest. But yeah, there are those moments where you're like, oh, man, I don't want to get yeah, into this with just, you right now. Yeah, and sometimes, most of the time I love it. Yeah. When people will kind of like come at me with some kind of misconception or something that they've heard before and I can kind of write that wrong right there. That's awesome. What I don't like is when I feel like, well, now I can't order pizza. <laughs> I know. Yeah. If but, Or they're like, you're eating pizza right now? Yes, I am a normal person just like everybody else. Exactly. Pizza tastes good to me just like it tastes it's good Exactly. To you. Just about that honesty. I'm not a perfectionist. And I, again, I'll never be perfect about my food. And I don't want to be. I want to try all the new foods and the new restaurants and do all the things that you're doing, too. We just have to figure out how to work that into your lifestyle. Exactly. And so that doesn't make me any better than you because I figured that out. Like, I can still have pizza, but also have broccoli on the day-to-day. I'm not yeah. having it every single day. Yeah. It's so. how I feel, you know, like when Phil, my dog, if Phil pukes at the gym and I get three people look at me and say, what's wrong with your dog? I'm like, I feel like overwhelmingly guilty. <laughs> like, God, I really should, this should not be happening. But, you know, that's how it goes. Um. Yeah, the thing, the, the, what I was just going to say too about understanding food, I think we take that for granted. Like you just said, just because you know all that stuff, it's that education that I think we overlook, or at least the lack of education we overlook a lot. When I'm telling someone in the gym, make healthy decisions, the assumption is that they know what a healthy deci- decision is, but they might not. Yeah, they may think, you know, I saw this commercial for the Adkins diet recently this was real life. where on tv on tv it was rob Lowe. do they call it that yes wow. so rob Lowe called the atkins diet the new keto he said <laughs> the ketogenic diet is really hard if you've tried the ketogenic and it's been too hard for you the atkins diet is the new keto it's the easier way to keto isn't atkins the old keto anyway it's not even keto it's like your it's... body can't even, even <laughs> get into ketosis with that much protein so I, that, I mean, I'm getting off on a tangent there, but that made me angry. But yeah, but people see these messages and they're like, oh, well, that means I should be eating a ton of protein, no carbohydrate. So is that healthy? And like you said, oh, I saw this article that said banana is the worst thing you could possibly eat if you want to lose weight. So all these messages are in their head about what healthy actually means. Exactly, which means it's hard to really know. It makes you feel like you maybe don't know everything that you should know or that you do know. You haven't been appropriately educated. We take that so for granted. I think I, at least speaking personally, take that so for granted. I definitely do too. We can talk sure. all day long with college degrees and, and you know, positive upbringings and all this other stuff that we have a comfortable understanding of what healthy foods are and what unhealthy foods are and then 
as a natural segue from that, what a healthy decision is and what an unhealthy decision is. But you take that for granted to some extent, especially when you're talking to someone who didn't have all the things you had. They might not know what's a healthy decision and what's yeah. not a healthy decision. If I go to Chipotle and I just get less cheese, is that a healthy decision or not? You know, it's it's something that you have to kind of talk to people about. Do you feel comfortable in your understanding of, of what's good for you, what is healthy for you, and what is not? I think because I'm immersed in this world all the time, I do forget as well. I was doing some consultations for a company who was doing a research study on diabetes. And so they had people come in that were already diagnosed with diabetes and I was kind of doing a food recall with them, a little bit of counseling. And I remember this one woman was telling me that she just switched from Coke to lemonade because she was like, I'm trying to bring my blood sugars down. I just switched from Coke to lemonade. So instead of drinking Coke all day, now I'm drinking lemonade. And that just like hit me square in the face of like, what do you mean you don't understand that yeah, lemon's that's a fruit. just as bad for you as the Coke? It has maybe even more sugar in it than the Coke did. But, yeah, I, I definitely get lost it's the in, diet the, soda uh, phenomenon. Like in the world of quinoa and kale. I forget that there's people that have never had that education to say, yeah, lemonade's not actually. Exactly. Or I'm eating at Panera. So you automatically just think, like, I'm not going to McDonald's, I'm going to Panera. So I'm making a healthy choice because I automatically just went into Panera. But you're getting the mac and cheese and the... It's almost enough to make you mad when some of these companies have have branded themselves so well to appear healthy, and they aren't. They're just cloaking their whatever it is with this healthy... And the hibiscus pink tea that they're getting, and it's 80 grams of sugar... And they don't realize it because it looks so... The hibiscus tea... It's pink. It's called hibiscus. It's a flower. Yes. It has to be good for me. 84 grams of sugar. Exactly. Enjoy. Oh, another one. Why am I sleepy? Um, It's only 3 o'clock. Do you know? (laughs) Uh, Jamba juice. (laughs) Smoothies in general. Yeah. I have so many people... I had a conversation. Miguel and I went to... Planets or whatever it is, tropical smoothie. Them, yeah. yeah, some smoothie joint. I don't want to name them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> some generic, uh, not to be named smoothie outfit. Anyway, and I'm looking at a couple of them, and there was a smoothie that was bananas, acai berries, strawberries, raspberries, and kiwi. And I, you know, I had to tell the guy, "Do you add sugar to this?" And he's like, "Yeah," and you know, like, "Please hold the sugar Why? and give me half of the amount." Anyway, that's kind of how I order there. And in my head, I'm just thinking. Bananas, raspberries, strawberries. Why are you adding sugar to this? It's a sugar cocktail to exactly. begin with. Exactly. Where did we go wrong where we have to have that dopamine dump every four seconds that we have to add bleach and sugar yeah. to everything that we consume or it's not worth consuming? Yeah. That's another thing that I think is an obstacle is like rewiring your sugar brain to not need it all the time. And I've it sucks so when you do that. that I've had to- you know, teach how to make a good smoothie, and they drink it, and they're like, oh, what is it's this? Gross. It's like, well, it's sweetened with fruit. You're going to have to get used to it. That's all there is to it. And You're you do. Have to get used to it. You do get Absolutely. used to them, and it just, it used to it. It just takes a little while, and it's annoying, and your head hurts and all that. But, man, if, if anything illustrates how backwards we've gotten with how we understand nutrition, it's that constant need for sugar. Yeah, there are so many people. So if you're doing this, if you're going to the gym and you're getting on the elliptical for 30 minutes and then you're going to plan a smoothie for a recovery smoothie right afterwards, 
stop what doing did, what yeah. you're doing. What did you do that You are day? exactly, un- you were undoing everything that you just did on that elliptical for 30 minutes. We need to, like, reevaluate. You know, in the early days of Subu, uh, there was um, a guy who would come around a lot, and he would always very proudly state that he could out-train any diet. And what he meant was okay. he could eat whatever he wanted yeah. as long as he out-trained it. And I'm sure he could point to some examples in his life of when that looked like it was true. But even then, I remember thinking, man, that's a that's a dangerous mindset. It's a bold statement. That's a bold statement, and yeah. it's a dangerous mindset to have. Run out sooner. <laughs> there are so many obstacles, so many bumps in that road that you could hit and derail yourself. I mean, it's like driving a motorcycle 100 miles an hour on the highway. I mean, it might last and work for a little while, but... Well, the other thing is, too, like maybe he had a six-pack, but that doesn't necessarily mean that his blood work looked great. Exactly. That's the same thing. You know, we tell funk, funky stories all the time, but another one that comes to mind is a guy who was a great weightlifter in good shape, and he counted macros, but he would always arrange his macros so that he could have a whole king-size bag of Sour Patch Kids Whoa. <laughs> while he lifted. Okay. And me and another person were talking to him one day like, dude, <laughs> no. <laughs> Like he's like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. I'm fine. We're like, yeah, you, yes. Do you look good? Yeah, you look good. Are you fit? I mean, can you lift and all that stuff? Yes, 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 yes. But there are some things that are going on inside of you that are probably not so great yeah. that we could fix yeah. just by eliminating the Sour Patch Kids. One of the things that I I think is eye opening to clients is telling them, you know, yeah, we don't know a whole lot of people in their 20s with type two diabetes. We know a lot of people in their 60s and 70s with type 2 diabetes. That doesn't mean that you get diabetes in your 50s and 60s by what you're doing then. That means that every single day that you ate that large size Sour Patch Kids, you are breaking down your body day by day by day. Eventually, it breaks down so much that your cells can't uptake that insulin anymore, and that is what diabetes is. That's what heart disease is. It's every single day that you're breaking down those systems and you're not doing the right stuff, that eventually it catches up to you. So a lot of people think, well, I'm 20, I don't have to worry about this. Or I'm 30, I don't have to worry about this. Yeah, my dad has diabetes, but he didn't, didn't get diabetes till he's in his 50s. Then I'll start taking care of myself. But what we don't realize is it's all of those things that we're giving to our bodies over time that's causing that breakdown that then equals that chronic disease. Yeah, and to put a behavior analytic spin on that, it is everything to do with consequences immediate consequences and delayed consequences and what we know for certain with respect to how human behavior works or all behavior works for that matter is that immediate consequences are far more powerful than delayed consequences and that's true for every living organism on the planet and that I think is the genesis of our struggle with food because immediate consequences are powerful that cigarette feels good tastes good smells good to some people It might have adverse effects 10 months from now, 10 years from now, 30 years from now. Delayed consequences will never carry the power that immediate consequences do. Back to that hot stove. You touch a hot stove, it hurts immediately. Mm -hmm. It doesn't hurt an hour later. There might be some lingering pain, but the initial reaction happens immediately. That's a powerful consequence. To use a more positive example, you pull a casino slot lever one time and you win $1,000. That feels real good. What are you going to do immediately after that? Pull it again. Mm -hmm. Immediate consequences carry so much power. 
humans are so unique because we are the only creatures that really have advanced language and therefore have thoughts and now can use delayed consequences to our advantage. If I withhold from this cigarette, I'll have a healthier heart down the line. If I don't eat this ice cream, my blood sugar will stay healthy down the line. That down the line thinking is so important and it's such a gift. I don't know where it comes from, but it's such a gift that we have that so that we can now harness the power of delayed consequences. But there is no fighting, there is no arguing with the very simple fact that immediate consequences are so naturally powerful and they're so hard to resist and get out of. The Sour Patch Kid the example, they taste good right away. Mm-hmm. There is no exposure to adverse consequences, at least now, not until later. If you need proof of this or illustration with this, try to teach your dog something new and give him his favorite treat or toy right away and see how long it takes you. Do that same thing, but delay the delivery of that treat or toy even by 30 seconds, even by a minute, and your effect will not be as profound and it may not even occur. That's an animal, that's a dog. By the way, let me just say this about dogs. Often when I reference dogs, and you did this earlier about comparing dogs to people, some people get offended by that. I've, I've, I've encountered that before. And that's preposterous to me. Dogs are such great learners. And they're such, they're so, they're, they're just such great examples of how, of learning in motion. That's exactly. I was thinking about the delayed. I was thinking about Norman at home. He knows he's not supposed to get in the recycling. He'll get in the recycling when I'm gone because he gets to see what's in there. Immediate consequence. When I come home, he knows he's in trouble. But he, it was worth it at the time. 100, for him, it was 100%. Worth it. His animal brain says, I could have a lot of fun now and possibly not so much fun later. Ah, let's do yeah, it. Exactly. You know? Yeah. I said to a parent one time, um, a parent of a, of a youngster who uh, we were doing uh, one-on-one teaching with, you know, try to be in the habit of praising him or her whenever he or she does this. And the answer was, you mean like a dog? And I wanted to say, yeah, like a dog. Look how, yeah, look how well behaved and awesome that dog is. Why wouldn't you want that for your child or for any of them? Talking about delayed consequences and how you could potentially harness their power and and create a more immediate relationship between what are normally delayed consequences and the behaviors that cause them. Um, And, you know, What I find very exciting is the possibility or the potential role that technology can play in that in that process. Available technologies and emerging ones, you know, I can think of a study that took place at USF during my time there where the lead author was evaluating um, eating behaviors, overeating behaviors, binging behaviors in participants with bulimia. And the theory, the hypothesis then in that study was that these participants were engaging in this binge eating to make themselves feel better. There was a positive response. It felt good to eat their favorite foods, lots of them. Now that's an immediate consequence, of course, it feels good. And they were doing that to counteract or to neutralize negative emotions, negative self-talk. I'm fat, I'm ugly, I'm no good, nobody likes me. Eat, 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 feel better. And then as we know with bulimia, it's, you know, most tragic characteristic is then of course that they purge all that food, which is its whole other uh, wagon of 
of adverse effects, of course. But what they did was they tried to nullify that effect, and so they had the participants record, audio record, those same negative self-talk, those same pieces of negative self-talk, those same negative emotions, thoughts, and feelings, which in and of itself was a difficult process because now you right. have to ask someone to take what's in their head and what's pretty negative and say it out loud, I'm ugly, I'm fat, nobody likes me, that kind of stuff. It was kind of traumatic. Record that and then keep that tape with them, keep it available either on their phone or some other device. And when they would engage in their overeating behaviors, their binging behaviors, play the tape, thereby eliminating any way to escape it. You cannot escape it through food. And through repeated exposure, there was a significant therapeutic effect. Binge eating decreased. I think that maybe 50 years from now, we'll look at that as a very rudimentary way of doing that. But I think it, it, it creates a foundation, at least creates a precedent that if we can take consequences that are ordinarily not in place and rearrange them so that they do occur either at the same time or immediately after undesirable behaviors or something like that, that they can then have an effect. Imagine a world where you could deliver um, a very negative heart screening to someone as soon as they smoked on a cigarette. Mm -hmm. Now, this was semi-sort of attempted with branding, you know, in some places. I think Canada did this where cigarette packages had, like, horrible pictures of right, gum yeah. disease, etc. Mm -hmm. Eh, kinda. Mm -hmm. I guess the idea was in the right place. Doesn't really work. Mm -hmm. Once again. It's not you, it's somebody it's else. It's not. It's somebody else, and we're talking about the power of immediate consequences. The cigarette feels good. That stupid package is ugly and gross, but as soon as you put it in your back seat, it ain't there anymore. Right. So you're left with only the good stuff. But I think that if you know, if you imagine a world like that, or if you imagine if you had real-time feedback about your body, about your current health, and you ate a whole Snickers bar, and you saw the numbers change on an armband or something like that, some immediate consequence where you could really see in real time what's happening, what's going on inside yeah. you, wow. I think you would have a much different relationship mm -hmm. with your food take your your consumption in general this is you know this is not um entirely without precedent you know you think of proprioception being you know immediate you know anatomical feedback on your body being so powerful as a learning device if you remember old infomercials from the 90s early 2000s about a golf club that would collapse if your mechanics were off if your golf swing wasn't perfect the club would collapse and of course eliminate any chance of you hitting the ball, that's an immediate consequence for something in real time. And we're talk we're splitting hairs here a little bit because if your golf swing isn't good, the consequence is that the ball doesn't go as far or where you want it to. Now that's a semi-delayed consequence, even though it feels like it's quick. A more immediate consequence is the collapse of that golf club. So as soon as your elbow drops or your foot pulls away, the club will collapse and you mm -hmm. can't finish your swing. That's an immediate consequence, and it's not a good one. So you then learn to avoid it. How do you avoid it? Well, through a perfect golf swing, and that's how you reinforce a perfect golf swing with a collapsible club. Mm -hmm. So if you could introduce that in some way to consumption, food consumption, I think the effect would be profound. And I think that the technology either already exists or it's about to. Everyone walks around with some sort of monitor on their body. Mm -hmm. Everyone you see is measuring something to do with their 
anatomy at all times or their physiology. It's rare to see someone who isn't. And it's easy for me to imagine a world 50 years from now where that device or there is some device that is really telling you all sorts of things about your body and your health in real time so that you can respond to it in a meaningful way. And I think that that would be, that could have a, a hugely profound impact on how we deal with food and how we relate to it. Going back to the bulimia study, one thing I think is interesting about that is that it forced people to think about why they were doing that behavior right then in that moment, whereas food is so often used as a distraction from what you're actually feeling. So you're feeling this certain emotion, whether it's feeling bad about yourself or you're feeling angry or you're feeling sad or you're feeling left out and you utilize food to not feel that uncomfortable feeling because food is now comfortable. Whereas what they were doing there is drawing attention to that feeling and you're mm -hmm. going to feel it no matter what, whether you're eating or not. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're eliminating the escape route. Now there, you know, if anyone's interested in learning more about that or you have concerns about that study, because I do understand that it sounds very significant and sensitive, look it up. I would encourage you to read it. You know, the limitations are listed um, in the article, of course. But, y you know, it does, like you say, it forces someone to confront the very thing that they're trying to escape from. And that might be the key to success for a lot of people with food. You know, like back to what we keep saying about the relationship you have. Is it a good one? Is it a healthy one? Is it one that makes you feel good? Or is it one that you're using as an escape route? Is it one that you're using like a drug? I just want to feel better right now. Sugar is such a drug, you know, and you just have to be first aware of that before you can fix it. There are so many people that I work with that see food as the enemy, but they don't actually realize that until we bring that out and bring that to light. Exactly, they're oh, unaware. I am constantly fighting this food all the time. It's, I'm hungry for breakfast. No, I can't eat. I need to delay it for another two hours. Mm -hmm. Or I want another piece of whatever it is. No, I can't do that. It's me fighting this battle with food constantly every single day four to five times a day and that's exhausting exactly it is so then you start to crave these moments of reprieve exactly. where it's not work it's like yeah. oh I it's just like, let me just not finally just not think about it and that's where the so-called cheat days come up because exactly. you've been fighting yourself for six days day seven oh my gosh bring all the things in that make mm -hmm. me feel good that i don't have to think about so i can just shut my brain off when yeah. it comes to this stuff you have to believe in a possibility that you can have a good day every day at some point that all your days can be good days right. and you'll feel good about it right. and that you aren't constantly looking forward to whatever that brief moment of of joy is but because i think people go on diets in high school and they never come off them or they're either on a diet or off of a diet for their entire lives they don't believe that there's actually going to be a point where food is not the enemy anymore and it's just another thing in their lives that they get some joy from but it's not a focal point yeah exactly it's a tough challenge though isn't it it is it is and it's because foods get better you know <laughs> we talk about emerging technologies yeah. when's the last time you walked down a candy aisle <laughs> i mean some of that stuff is like wow speaking of i was ranting about this the other day you cannot get a regular size candy bar anymore Oh, they don't exist. Or they, a drink. You, you can't. It's it's either two Snickers bars or no Snickers bar. Or king size Snickers bar. No, you cannot just go get a regular size 
pack of M&Ms anymore. They just don't it's exist. Family and size. they seem weird when you see them now. When you see like an old school like size, I was in North Carolina, a remote part of North Carolina not too long ago and I saw a regular size package of M&Ms and I honestly thought where's the rest of it? I was like <laughs> is that it? And then you realize, oh, you walk around, everyone walks around with a uh, trick-or-treat sack full of candy <laughs> as one portion <laughs> exactly. or a bucket of soda. It, like the I mean, this has been talked about to death, but the portion sizes are just outrageous. <laughs> and they're so damn funny sometimes. If you really let yourself find the humor in it, it's like, holy crap. Yeah. Why is that? Why do I need two Snickers bars? That Reese's bar is called... Outrageous, the nutrageous <laughs> bar, and it's as big as a baseball bat. I'm like, what is going on? You need a knife and fork yeah, to tackle that thing. I know, I know, and it wasn't that big of a deal to have a candy bar that was the size of my palm, but now it's seven of my palm, so it's a bigger deal to have that. Gotta get that and dopamine. You know, and you know what? To expect someone to eat half of it and then put their other half of it away? Absolutely not. We live in Florida. That shit's gonna melt. You need to eat that now. Give me a break. Yeah, when I look at the the what that says on the back of a Ben and Jerry's pint about how many servings that is, I just roll my eyes. If I spend all day in the gym lifting like I almost always do, you know, and I get a Ben and Jerry's every once in a while, I'm eating the whole thing. Exactly. <laughs> it's going down. Yeah, like, exactly. there's just no question exactly. about it. There are some labeling laws that are coming out now where I'm not exactly sure what they are, but they're trying to make it so, like, serving sizes are what a typical serving would be like cereal some cereals are half a cup is a serving size no pour that out and look at it and get ready like, to what laugh does a bowl of cereal actually look like and putting the calories based on what it what people are yeah that's eating. inspiring to hear too because and it's another thing that just falls into that same category of just being honest let's be honest about what portions typically look like and feel like to people you know and label them that way you know calling whatever six ounces of raisin bran crunch a serving i mean it's preposterous no one you know yeah. you're gonna measure six ounces of a cereal sometimes when we're talking portion sizes in here i'll tell people just just use your fist for any type of carbohydrate serving so for rice about the size of your fist is a serving size think about going to chipotle how many fistfuls of rice are they putting in that bowl mm -hmm. that's how many servings of carbohydrate that you're getting yeah. plus you're getting the beans on top of that a few more fistfuls of those so when you're getting that whole bowl and you're eating that whole thing you may be having six servings of carbohydrate that's fine if you're going to go and bike 45 miles yeah. but if you're sitting at your desk all day it's and not. that's your lunch now you have an excess amount of fuel in your body that it's not going to burn. And you may not even know that. And most no. people probably don't know that. Because Chipotle's healthy, it's, right? Exactly. Chipotle's <laughs> healthy, healthy, and it's just one bowl. I had a burrito bowl. Yes. You didn't have six servings of rice and two portions of chicken. You had one burrito bowl, and that sounds and feels a lot different. You know, yeah. perception is everything. It is so powerful. Tyler, is there anything coming from your background that you feel like I could incorporate into what I... Because essentially what I do is try to get people to change their behavior. And I try to do that with knowledge and I try to do that with tricks of the mind and tips and ways to stay accountable yeah. and them coming in and me yeah. coaching them. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you think, either not just for me, but for people that are out there that are really trying to change their behavior surrounding food or fitness yes the big r the big r is what pops into my head immediately reinforcement reinforcement by definition is an increase in some aspect of behavior or just an increase in behavior in general 
and you already spoke about that a little bit and it sounds like what you do is is dead on the money and what I would recommend it always starts with you know what in our world we would call a reinforcer assessment or a reinforcer survey which is just a process of making sure that the consequences that you're delivering or the reinforcers that you're using are actually meaningful to that person that is a often overlooked step that step gets uh, abused or, or neglected far too often the assumption is that praise always works or the assumption is that chocolate everyone likes it's just not true so you have to make sure you know you know what you're using is going to be effective and then of course goal setting which we haven't talked a whole lot about yet today but goal setting and reinforcement used hand in hand is an unbeatable combination. Mm-hmm. And if you really are reinforcing behavior, then you're making progress. If you're not making progress, you're not reinforcing behavior. And that's what you need to look at. If you're not making progress, then we're either, we've misidentified our reinforcers or we're not delivering reinforcers enough, uh, more uh, as regularly as we should. We in our world would call that your reinforcer schedule. A thick schedule of reinforcement means you're exposed to reinforcers a lot. You're getting positive consequences often. A thin schedule, you're not getting positive consequences as often. You always want to go from thick to thin. You want to start by over-reinforcing, over-rewarding the things that you want to see. So let's make this into a real-world example for me. So like, let's say that I have a client who every single night they eat dinner, they're fine, they're satisfied, but then once they start watching TV, they've got to get up and they've got to eat chips or candy, and that's where the wheels just kind of come off. They do really well all day, wheels come off. So what's an example of what you're saying for reinforcement that they've been trying to change this behavior for the longest time, but they just can't see? So what are some of the things that you recommend to people like that? Well, most of the time they're not eating right throughout the day, and that's why they're hungry at the Mm -hmm. end of the day, and it's not really about their willpower to just say no. It's their body taking over and saying, hey, you didn't give me the things I needed to get all day today, and now you're going to pay for Mm -hmm. it. Like, go eat that candy, go eat those chips, because we didn't have enough fuel. You asked us to go to CrossFit. You asked us to go to work. Our brains had to work all day. We had to go pick up the kids. We're stressed. And all you had was this one meal at the end of the day, and you expect that to nourish your body. Or maybe you just had cereal for breakfast and a salad for lunch. Well, now we're making up for that hunger at the end of the day. And yeah, so more. that is, I have to admit, that's such a tough one because food is such a powerful reinforcer. When you are, as, as, as such a powerful reward, and so when you're trying to control the reward system, and the person, the client, the learner, whoever, is hijacking the reward system mm-hmm. and enabling themselves to have unlimited reign to the reward system, you're in trouble there a little bit. So, you know, buy-in is is huge. Getting someone to get on board with you. But introducing, so not making excuses, introducing other reinforcers. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of an of a example off the top of my head about someone who kind of stays on the wagon for most of the day and then has the potential to fall off at the end of the day. We would my, my first thought would be to you want to change the likelihood of staying on the wagon. You want to make staying on the wagon more likely than it already was and ideally you want to make staying on the wagon more likely than falling off the wagon. So how would you do that? What can you introduce that outweighs the lure of eating those bad foods. That's on a case-by-case basis. Mm -hmm. So 
you know, for me, and I don't want to, you know, recommend things that are cost prohibitive or that are too effortful or something like that. But my silly, very, very basic, simple example of my own self earlier was that did I have a good day today? It was just a verbal check-in with myself. Was today a good day? Yes, it was. And that felt great for me. But if we need something beyond that, something that's not in my position, um, you know, I, I, I like the idea of token reward systems. I also like the idea of building momentum visually. So like if you imagine a big, this is gonna sound silly, but just bear with me, a big coloring book page that's completely black and white. And once it's fully colored in, you know, you get whatever, $100 Amazon gift card or something like that. And you can only fill in each portion if you've had a good day, if you've resisted mm-hmm. that things, mm-hmm. you, you're then introducing things that don't naturally exist. But mm-hmm. you're but you're introducing something that might have more of a lure. And something that it's that immediate reward. It's an immediate Even reward. Even though you're not getting yes. the long term reward right then, it still has that's that what, aspect of an immediate. Reward. Exactly, that's what token systems are all about: is delivering a, an immediate reward in lieu of something that you otherwise would get. So a token doesn't really hold any real value. It represents something that's value valuable. And it's such a great way to kind of hack the system. Now, I have to say, when you're trying to hack the system with food-related things, you really got to swing for the fences because it's hard to outweigh food. So another kind of fun, silly example with dogs, Phil, my dog, loves to swim. He loves it more than anything else in the world. He loves it more than a T-bone steak. And you can see this when Phil's in the water and when he was a puppy and learning to respond to commands and things like that. If I attempted to reinforce his appropriate exiting of the pool, Phil, or get out of the pool, here's a treat, he would look and kind of get a whiff of the treat and see it and just keep swimming which told me right away the pool is more powerful yeah. the pool is more rewarding than this treat is so it's tough you really got to swing hard you got to swing for the fences when you're going to introduce a token system to combat food related mm-hmm. things so mm-hmm. if the if the desire the the decision is between the Ben and Jerry's ice cream in the freezer or this little token reinforcer that I might get it's a tough battle. Well, could it be something like, okay, I love watching Netflix. Watching Netflix is when the food comes. Well, you can't watch Netflix if you have the food. So if the food is there or yeah. or the only place where you can eat food is at the table where the TV isn't. I love that. It takes those two things away from each other. I so love that. I love that. And that's a great example of environmental modification. And what I've long said about applied behavior analysis and applied behavior analysts is that you can be good at behavior analysis if you're smart enough and you, you're practiced enough and you're rehearsed and you're familiar with the principles. But to be truly great, you have to have a creative mind and you have to be artful in the way that you arrange things, especially when it comes to environmental modifications. And what you just described is an environmental modification. Another one is grandma putting the cookie jar on top of the fridge because you can't get it up there. And if you were to try to get it, it would take a whole lot more effort, Mm -hmm. which is another one of my favorite techniques is increasing response effort. If you increase the amount of effort it takes to get the Cheetos, you're by definition, it's less likely to occur. Which is why if you don't buy Cheetos, you're probably not, not going to have them. If they're exactly, <laughs> and if and the same thing, if you, you know, buy an eleven dollar luggage suitcase lock that you put on a thing, it's so easy to undo those things. It takes like twenty two seconds to get into a cupboard that's locked. It tops. 
But those 22 seconds might be a difference maker. Mm -hmm. You might not want to get up off the couch to go and do all that. You've increased the response effort. Mm -hmm. And if you can kind of turn that dial up a little bit to make it harder to get those things, you're giving yourself a fighting chance to then become exposed to the token system or to whatever else you've introduced. And so you start to see how several different principles of behavior can kind of start to create this layered approach and you don't have to go super hard on any one of them if you're doing a few of them together. So if you're increasing response effort, if you are introducing um, alternative re or an alternative reward system like a token system, if you are in using goal setting, if you are um, encouraging an honest reflection of your, of your behavior, in other words, a food log or a food diary that has a good impact, maybe not always by itself, but if you use it in concert with some of these other techniques, you might see really good results with not a whole lot of effort. You're arranging, you're using different strategies together instead of just hammering down on one of them. You take a, a, a cohesive approach to this thing. You, I like to kind of view the world as like an aquarium and you're just moving the little castle around or the yeah. fern leaf over here and just seeing how the fish change if you make little small changes to your aquarium. And I think that, that a lot of people can do that themselves even. I mean, obviously we want people seeking professional advice where they can get it. But if to anyone you know listening that wants to tackle this on their own, start playing with the things that you can play with. Rearrange the things you can play with. Put the food higher up in the shelf or put it behind a healthy snack or something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, so just yeah. you're just creating a little yeah. bit more effort. Yeah. Something like that. I think the... I call it a food and mood journal. I think it's huge. As opposed to doing something like Don't you wish everyone would do that? Pal where you're counting macros. That doesn't really tell us anything. It doesn't tell us anything. It's just raw data. I don't want, yeah, I don't really I don't care about the numbers. I care about how you feel when you're eating that food. Like what is the behavior? Where are you when you're eating it? How are you feeling when you're eating it? What's your hunger level like when you're eating that food? I want to know more of those things because that's going to help me to change your behaviors versus Here's the 1,300 calories that I eat. Exactly. Yesterday. That's the whole thing about about honesty that we've touched on a few times now. And, and back to our scale opinions, it's just a number. When you're looking at raw data, to some people, geeks like me, raw data is all my engineers. compelling. All your engineers, <laughs> yes. They love it. All your designers. I mean, everyone who has that kind of mind, they respond to raw data. And they can respond to raw data powerfully. But a lot of people can't. Mm -hmm. And... I do think it's great, and I do think that we are, as a culture, getting better at self-reflection and confronting the way we feel about things. And But there's still so much room to, to, to grow in terms of recording that activity. Well, and a lot of times you record it, but you're never really going back to it. You're never Revisiting like, let me it, look yeah. at this two weeks of data and see what it says to me. But if we can get that two weeks of data and we can also get that extra how I was feeling, what I was doing, and put that all together, that's when we can really figure out what do we need to change and work on here. That's where the gold is, I think. Yeah, I, I could not agree more. And in my experience, there seems to be this weird stigma with that. Like if some people feel like, oh, I'm in a kindergarten class and I have to put my my marker on the happy face if I'm happy or the bad face if I'm grumpy or something like that. That's the kindergarten version of it. Don't get hung up on what that looks like in a kindergarten classroom. Think about what it could look like in your life, in real life, if you, you know, could, again, in real time, say at any given point, 
what your emotional status is and then be reminded to revisit that and see what it was like and how you felt at certain times and start to notice patterns. Just own your own emotional spectrum. You know, I, I feel like people should really have a higher interest in their own bodies, their own anatomy, their own emotional well-being. Record it, look at it, become familiar with it. It can be uncomfortable sometimes. It might make you feel a little awkward, but it's very much worth it. You know, you look, everyone looks in the mirror every day. You know what your face looks like, but you still do it. We still like to see ourself, our reflection. Do that with other parts of your life. Check in with yourself how you're feeling. Check in with, you know, what your what your goals are and if you want to adjust them and, and how you feel. You know, there's so many so many ways you can measure your uh, you know, your life, you know, the quality of your life. Explore those different ways of measuring your quality of life. I think people are afraid to do that. I, some, I think so sometimes too. Because when you've never done that self self analyzing and you're like, What am I gonna find when I do scary do that? for sure. I, when I do try to encourage my clients to start that, I find a lot of resistance sometimes and they don't realize there's a lot of stuff that they do need to confront that they've just kind of been pushing down and pushing down and pushing down and just not dealing with for a long time. But that's actually creating some difficulties in other areas of their life that they're yeah. not really realizing. And to tie everything together, you have to reward that. When you're, when you're looking at things that are uncomfortable and you're confronting things that might make you feel funny or awkward, you have to reward that. Just the simple fact of doing it or it's not gonna happen anymore. That's just a simple fact. It's not me being touchy-feely. That's just a fact of nature. Things that are aversive do not continue. Do you slap yourself in the face when you wake up? No, <laughs> why not? Because it hurts, <laughs> you know? Me exactly. Get rid of my so when you do exactly, when you do things that are aversive, you naturally avoid them. Mm -hmm. You you try to get away from them. And if confronting your feelings about how you feel about your diet and food and your healthfulness if that's aversive, if it doesn't feel good, you're not gonna do it. So we have to really re-engineer how we do those things so that they do feel good, so that they do create a positive change in our mindset. And from there, that's the foundation, from yeah. there we can then start to make some more meaningful changes. Yeah. But you have, to, you have to take an engineering approach to you know, how you interact with the world. Yeah, so moral of the story is it's okay to do things that feel uncomfortable at first, but we need to figure out how to engineer it so that you do feel comfortable with it. And yeah. so you can get a reward from that yeah. in that moment as well as in the long term. Yeah, be a well. child. Take Approach everything like a child does, like it's new, like it's fresh, like, you're, like it's okay to not be good at it. We're so obsessed with not looking stupid or not being bad at something that we just avoid things entirely. And I don't see why self-reflection or self-evaluation is any different from that most of us don't do it and so we're not very good at it and so we avoid it it's definitely we, not something that we learn we, no we certainly learn not to be graded by other people and other things we don't really ever learn i need to reflect back on myself and kind of grade myself on the day you know i've thought a lot about making an instagram account that i just post super ugly pictures of myself <laughs> by honestly <laughs> You know, everyone everyone rolls out the greatest hits. Uh -huh. It's constantly yeah. the greatest yeah. hits. Yep. Let's I, see some deep cuts every once in a while. Man, you we know, could, we could really go down a rabbit hole with this. I just had a conversation with one of my favorite clients yesterday, and she was she works for a company, and they really wanted to feature her on Instagram. And when she left her house, she was feeling really good. She was in this dress. 
she went to Disney, she, like, went to get the perfect picture at Disney, but what you don't realize in that moment is that there's 70 other people waiting in line to get a picture by that pumpkin, and so the shot that you take, you're so annoyed in that moment to try to make you look how you want to look, no one there is having <laughs> That's fun. That's hilarious. And and she looks back at the photos and she hates every single one of the photos because she was literally hating herself while she was there. And But what you see is this gorgeous picture of this pumpkin in her pretty yellow dress. It's so funny. And That's some Wizard of Oz stuff. Everybody there stuff. was hating life. I know. <laughs> no one was having fun. It's such a lie. I, that's such a harsh word to throw around. But I think that all the time when I'm looking at our social media channels, I'm like, this is a lie. This mm-hmm. is such a lie. And you... And Not that there isn't truth to it, but like you, but you're, that is such a beautiful example. I think that standing and it's like that moment. If you could, that's a visual representation of a moment. If you had some sort of virtual reality device where you could you feel what it. she was feeling, <laughs> yes. you'd be like, yes. "Oh, this yes. is terrible." Yes, exactly, and it, it also it causes you to have these expectations, like. She had this expectation, I'm going to go to Disney for this Halloween party, and it's going to be so much fun. And you get there, and it's hell, and there's it's packed, and there's all these people, and you have such high expectations, so you feel like shit about yourself because you're in the happiest place in the world, and you're not having fun like you saw that Instagrammer's photo that you're trying to get. Mm-hmm. You're not having that same fun that that person looked like they were having, so you have these high expectations, and you get let down, and it's like, what's reality? It just... It's it's we live in a VR virtual world. I'm telling you right now, this it's just so mind-boggling when you think about it. Because yes, you, the the viewer's expectations is I want to have that same beautiful moment that she had, and then when they get there and they're frustrated, like oh, I'm not having that same beautiful moment. But the reality is, you are having the exact same moment. It's just a moment of yes. frustration and agony. Yes. <laughs> the visual the visual fossil of it looks good. But the experience was miserable. So you did get what you wanted. You and just didn't know that's what it was. <laughs> exactly. Expectations are just everything. This is not the time or place for it. And I know you probably don't care anyway. But one of my little nerdy stories, self-experiments with respect to this topic, is I stopped watching movie trailers for a year. I didn't watch any preview or any trailer okay. or expose myself to any media okay. to do with upcoming movies. And it had a really interesting effect on me. It really, really did. I know it's so weird and lame, but it did. And it just, you know, it, it, it illustrates how powerful your expectations can be and how much they can shape your experience. Mm. And if you can, so if you go in something without those expectations, how different the outcome? Yeah, if you're not going into your Disney picture thinking it's going to be this marvelous afternoon and when you're confronted with the reality of it not being so great, that's a rough experience. If you go planning for it to be terrible, and it is terrible, it's like, well, I knew this would happen. If you go planning for it to be terrible, and it's great, oh, cool, nice surprise. I don't mean to suggest you should always assume everything's going to be terrible, and then you're just happy when it's not. But I think you should set yourself up with some realistic expectations of what the experience is going to be like. That was another really, really powerful, and maybe this does have some value for this conversation, but expectation setting was a really powerful tool uh, in my arsenal back when I was practicing real life behavior analysis in a group home setting you would take trips often into the community with five or six of your clientele and we're talking about people that had serious problem behaviors who were very likely to engage in inappropriate things in the community you just had to plan for it, it was just part of the deal 
But if you set expectations with them and with your staff and everything, like, look, this is how the day is going to go. I expect all of us to do X, Y, and Z. If this happens, we rely on this plan. If this happens, we rely on this plan. Okay, everybody good? Repeat back to me what our expectations are. Great, you understand them. All right, let's go. Let's go do our experience. It takes four minutes of your day Mm -hmm. to go over expectations and to talk about them. And then when you're confronted with them, they don't feel like a surprise and you feel prepared. And when you feel prepared for something, you just feel more confident. And I think with food and dieting and things, if you accept the expectation that you're going to have some some bad days, some rocky days, some tempting days, you didn't time your meals right, you're really hungry, you're driving home, you got to pass three Wendy's and two Burger Kings, prepare for that, plan for it, set the expectations, you know. That can have in in and of itself just a, a... a great impact or a great effect on it. Yeah, I find that with with CrossFit, some days if I set the expectation I'm going to hit my max today and then Mm. I go and I don't, that experience is much different than if I say, I'm just going to get there today. Like, I don't, when I, you know what, I'm going to go there and I'm probably not going to do this part. Like, I'm probably just going to skip it. Maybe I'll just rest during that period. But once I get there and then I surprise myself, like, oh, you actually did do that whole workout that's mm-hmm. a much different experience than i would have had going in there being like it's going to be balls entirely balls. i'm going to beat my time i'm going to do all of that At entirely least me, mentally and you might get the exact same score or lift the exact same amount in both of those scenarios mm-hmm. and they'll but feel differently feeling. based just on how you entered the environment how you what you brought into it right that to me is i think that's so cool just to be completely honest that's such a cool thing that again is unique to the human experience that we can create our own own experience experience. yeah exactly yeah all right shutting this down yeah sorry with with something fun favorite meal in the world if you could eat anything what would it be i've mentioned ice cream a few times today so i'll have (laughs) just have to say that i mean honestly is there anything better i mean what is better than I, ice cream. It's just ice cream. Is straight, it, straight is up. Is it from the, like Ben and Jerry's from the grocery store? Is it like you go to Kelly's home yeah. to get ice cream? Fish is food. Ben and, and Jerry's it? fish food is probably my favorite food on the planet. Okay. I love is popcorn. Is that one sour gummy, gummy worms in it or am I making that up? No. What is that one? That's like, that one has a funny name too. But um, I also love popcorn very, very much. Unbuttered, unsalted. I mean, all the good stuff too. But I love, love, love popcorn. Always have. Are you a fan of the movie theater pump? butter or are you like that? I'd be lying if I said I didn't like the taste but I never ever ever eat that stuff it is let me tell you a little fun fact about that pump butter because that was my first job was at a movie theater it is not butter, it's not butter. obviously <laughs> you know what it is it's peanut oil mm-hmm. with orange dye to look like butter mm-hmm. it's peanut oil <laughs> with orange dye to look like what in yeah, the guys, actual hell it. is going is on. So I would stand in a movie theater and just watch person after person just mindlessly pumping peanut oil onto their fried corn kernels <laughs> with a giant Diet Coke, and it's just like, holy crap, what are we doing to ourselves? So, well, yes, I do uh, enjoy the taste if someone has it already and I take a, a little nibble. Yeah, sure, fine, but I never go near that yeah. stuff. <laughs> So in Bali, I had popcorn gelato. So putting both of your favorite things together oh, was man. absolutely disgusting. <laughs> I only got like again, I don't believe it. That was an Instagram <laughs> thing. Was, like, yeah. Oh yeah. And I can take a picture of it and I post that picture. Hell, and does yeah, it look beautiful? Yeah. yeah I know. Like, it's it so disgusting. funny. So what's your favorite Not food? Not good at all. Ooh. Um, 
I mean, a T-bone steak. Is there anything better than that, too? I mean, I'll yeah, talk about food all day I mean, long. Yeah, but no, like on the grill. So I good. Mean, so, avocado. Like, universally, like, I can just put avocado on anything with a little bit of salt. So I like if I had to pick, like, too. one thing that I could still continue to have every day. Let me ask you this question. This is, I think, a fun one. Sorry, you can edit all this no, crap okay. out, but I'm going to ask you anyway. <laughs> a food that you have changed your opinion on wildly from... Ooh. One point in your life to another. Peanut butter. Really? 100%. And you didn't like it and you do? Peanut butter because. When or you I was used to like up, it and now you don't. Well, when I was coming up in this whole nutrition world, fat was the enemy still. And so it was fat free peanut butter or reduced fat peanut butter or no peanut butter at all because, oh my gosh, there's 120 calories in one tablespoon of peanut butter. So you, why are you going to waste your calories? Oh, yeah, I know. Like that. Yeah. To now give me all the peanut butter, give me all the almond butter, multiple scoops of it, because it's such a satisfying food, and also in figuring out that when you take fat out of something, you have to add something else to it to make it still taste satiating to your body, which most times means we're going to add sugar to it. So we're going to take the good fat from a natural food that just grew, and we didn't add anything crazy to it, to now we're adding sugar to it to make it taste good because we took the fat out well now like i encourage everybody throw away your reduced fat peanut butter there's absolutely no reason to throw to keep that in your body or keep that in your pantry because they're just adding crap to it and the fat from peanuts is good fat it's good healthy fat it's brain food it sends your brain the satisfaction signal so it's worth those calories to have that peanut butter or that almond butter because you're getting good benefits out of that i'd say that's a yeah I, th- I find those examples fascinating and that's a great one foods that you've changed your opinion on wildly also sure. things like rice cakes which you know back in the 90s were super in vogue and I the mean, great you, snack you just dug up a time capsule of <laughs> snacking in the 90s it's 1995 you're gonna watch football on tv or whatever and you're trying to fix your diet you're eating reduced fat peanut butter on a rice rice cake cake. that's what you're doing exactly and one of the things i bring up to people i'm like have you ever eaten a rice cake and thought and thought wow that was satisfying (laughs) never no literally never done that maybe you've eaten the whole bag but even it's almost more aggravating than not eating anything at all yeah because even even then you can feel physically full because you ate that whole bag of rice cakes but you don't feel mentally satisfied and that's because there was no fat there Eating a rice cake is like having to sneeze and then it going away. It's just <laughs> annoying. You'd rather just yeah. give me the sneeze. Yep, yep. Those are those are probably the big ones that I... I would also say I've changed my tune a little bit on... I was vegetarian for a while and didn't consume any animal products unless it was something special. Like, we're going out to this barbecue place in Texas. Yeah, I'm still going to try the barbecue there. But other than that, like, didn't cook any meat at home. To now um, realizing that... I specifically, personally, do a little bit better when I have some fish and some red meat worked in there every once mm-hmm. in a while. And everyone is, I found that everyone is different when it comes to that. There's no real right answer of you should eat meat or you should not eat meat. There's a spectrum of people that their body responds differently to different ways of eating. Yeah. And for some people being vegetarian, maybe you don't feel as good or as energetic as you would if you did have a steak every two weeks or something like that, but it's worth it to them just environmentally or just in their conscious to yeah. not have that. And I 100% understand that. But for me, what I found now is it just makes more sense to me. And back then, like I actually wasn't appetized by 
me. Like, I just built it up so much in my head that I didn't even want it. But now I 100% crave it for sure. Yeah, that sounds a lot like my mom's experience. She has an autoimmune disorder and she's always, and she um, abstained from meat for so long that it, the same thing, it was not in any way appetizing to her. And she, you know, has, like you, refolded that into her diet. And it took some work to get comfortable with that idea mm-hmm. again. It, mm-hmm. it, it, yeah, it used to gross me out for sure. Like, don't put a chicken breast on my plate. Ugh. One more thing, I, you know. Again, we can you can edit all this stuff out since we've gone over and I ramble too much. But you you mentioned being vegetarian, and we talked a lot about CrossFit. What would you recommend? What do you say to vegetarian CrossFitters in, in terms of keeping themselves healthy? I have had a vegan crossfit athlete that came to me and we were able to get her between 90 and 125 grams of protein per day and she was thriving very well on that vegan diet and i had her track every single thing every single day so we could prove this to her and to other people that come to me with those issues that we can still hit your protein needs even if you don't have any animal products and hers was more of just being environmentally conscious and she just did not want to eat animal products and she wasn't going to and she didn't want her performance to be suffering from that so we found a happy medium for her challenge it it can be done it's something you have to stay on top of every single day but you can still do it you can still meet yeah it's possible it takes a lot of work Mm -hmm. exactly because that's when i really do feel unqualified to answer people's questions when they ask about diet in the gym and they say that they're either vegetarian or vegan, mm-hmm. you know, I'll say, you're really going to have to talk to somebody. It's just more work because yeah. for for animal eaters, like, we can throw a steak on the grill real quick and you can get 60 grams of protein very easily. Super fast, yeah. But for a vegan, it takes some thought to get 25 grams of protein into a meal every single time that you're eating. It's just going to, I mean, it's a lot easier for a vegetarian to just say, I'm going to have a grilled cheese sandwich for dinner because it's easy and I can throw it together. But you're probably only getting 10, 11 grams of protein there. You're not utilizing as much muscle synthesis as you possibly could in that zone. So for people like that, I think something like MyFitnessPal is really important to just maybe track for a week. Not forever for the rest of your life, but to really see, like, what does your protein intake naturally look like? Like, how low are you? Or actually, are you fine? Yeah. And where can we put those things in where you are getting enough and then how do we just keep recreating that? That doesn't mean you need to track it every day, but it's kind of showing you where your downfalls are. Track it until you till it becomes a habit, like we said earlier, just till it becomes kind of natural. Yep. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks for coming in. Thank this you. This is so much fun. Yeah, I love talking blast. about this stuff. Yeah. Okay. All right, guys. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, guys. Megan here. Have you heard of intermittent fasting? Have you thought about trying it or you've already tried it? Are you curious about the benefits of intermittent fasting? Or are you already convinced about the benefits, but you've struggled to make it part of your routine? Well, we have come up with a free resource for you. Go to go.orlandodietitian.com slash intermittent fasting to get your free guide to intermittent fasting. Again, that's go.orlandodietitian.com slash intermittent fasting to get all of your questions answered.